Section 7 of Easy Lessons in Einstein. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in November 2010. Easy Lessons in Einstein by Edwin E. Slauson. Section 7 Non Euclidean Geometry the idea that space itself may be curved and that the axioms and assumptions on which our geometry since the time of euclid have been based may not be absolutely and exactly and eternally and universally true has been diligently studied during the last fifty years the russian lobachevsky the hungarian bolyai and the german riemann have developed systems of geometry by starting from premises the opposite of those of euclid and these systems are just as logical and consistent with themselves as the ordinary or euclidean geometry these non-euclidean geometries were at first commonly regarded as mere freaks of the mathematical imagination but they have already proved valuable in leading to a reconsideration of the fundamental principles of our thinking and if einstein is right they may be necessary to explain physical phenomena it is hard for the mathematician to discover anything useless a distinguished american mathematician in announcing a new theorem exclaimed and thank heaven no possible use can ever be found for it but whatever it was he made a rash boast for nowadays the mechanic treads on the heels of the mathematician and uses imaginary quantities actual only in the fourth dimension like square root of minus one in figuring out the winding of his dynamo readers whose mathematical faculty is weak or undeveloped and who like something concrete with human interest in it will find what they want in flatland by a square a book published in boston in eighteen ninety one the author who turned out to be the reverend edwin abbott tells of a land in only two dimensions the ruling class consisted of polygons the bourgeoisie of squares and equilateral triangles the lower class of isosceles triangles of narrow base while the criminals had more irregular forms and the women were mere needles since all were confined to a surface four lines set in a square made a tight prison the inhabitants of flatland even the aristocratic and intellectual individuals who had so many sides as to be almost circular could not conceive of a third dimension from which a person like ourselves could look down and see at a glance the insides of their houses their safes and their bodies just as a being in the fourth dimension could see the insides of ours the narrator that is a square of flatland visits as a missionary the land of two dimensions where all the people lie in a line and refuse to believe in anything outside it and finally he encounters and endeavors to convert a solitary point of no dimensions but finds him as we should expect an incorrigible solipsist caption of figure on page fifty nine in space of one dimension a straight line there could be neither bend loop nor knot in a string in space of two dimensions a flat surface 
a double bend could be made in the string but no loop or knot could be made but if we raise one string into the third dimension and lay it over the other like this we get a loop but cannot form a knot without using the ends a knot like this cannot be made in a string so long as the ends are held by the hands but if we could use a fourth dimension we could tie such a knot as easily as we made a bend by the use of the second dimension and a loop by the use of the third if such a knot could be tied in a string so held it would be experimental evidence of the existence of four-dimensional space end of caption we should all of us have been familiar with the fourth dimension for years if slade had not turned out a trickster slade was an american medium the original of browning's mr sludge who fooled professor zöllner by giving him what purported to be experimental evidence of the fourth dimension zöllner was a distinguished german physicist professor of astronomy in the university of leipzig old near-sighted predisposed to spiritualism and unskilled in ledger domain any proofs that zöllner asked for slade was usually able at the next seance to produce all the things that one might do in four dimensions but could not do in three were forthcoming by the obliging spirits whom slade had at call zöllner tied the ends of a string together and sealed them on the table top letting the loop hang down under the table out of sight he then asked to have a single knot tied in the string and the spirits tied four zöllner also reports that the coins he put into a sealed box were taken out and writing produced inside sealed slates on the basis of these experiments zöllner wrote a volume on transcendental physics to prove the existence of another world in the fourth dimension but when slade tried his tricks in london he was caught at them by professor e ray lancaster he was convicted of deception with intent to defraud in the bow street police court and sentenced to three months imprisonment with hard labor nowadays the apparatus for slade's famous slate writing trick can be purchased at any conjurer's shop it is vain to expect anything scientific to come out of the seance room where the alleged phenomena are not reproducible under specified conditions but appear only occasionally and under circumstances prescribed by the medium who always may be and often is proved to be a sleight of hand or sleight of foot performer the fourth dimension which einstein and other scientists are now considering is not conceived of as the abode of departed spirits a spare room for ghostly visitants but merely as a new factor in a mathematical formula it offers us no hope of ever being able to take coin out of a closed safe or put coin into an unopened coconut but it does promise to explain certain optical phenomena which though rare and minute are yet open to the observation of anybody be he skeptical or credulous some simple examples lisbon lies nearly straight east of new york but when a ship captain wants to go to lisbon he does not sail straight east but sets his course a little northward in the beginning and a little southward toward the end 
and so gets there quicker than if he had followed a line of latitude. Draw his course on a flat map, and you would think he was taking a roundabout route, but trace it on a globe, and you will see that he is following a great circle, the geodetic line, which is the shortest distance between any two points on the Earth's surface. An airman looking down on a rocky, hilly, woody country sees it as a flat plain, and if he watched a hunter returning home with his bag of game, would wonder that he did not go straight instead of wandering around in such an irregular way. Yet the hunter, being tired, is taking what is for him the shortest way home as he dodges rocks and circumambulates the hills. The easiest way is the shortest way. A river, in its desire to reach the sea, always takes the shortest possible way. Its meanderings are not meaningless, but determined by a law as rigid as a law of geometry, that is, the law of gravitation, which prevents the river from taking a shortcut over the hill. If you look at a landscape over a heated plain or bonfire, or through uneven glass, you will see that the image is distorted and confused, because the rays of light are refracted and entangled as they pass through this unequal medium. Yet each ray is going just as straight as it can toward your eye. Caption of figure on page 63. Everyone knows that a ray of light is bent out of its straight course as it passes from the air into a denser medium like water or glass, and that this deflection apparently shifts the position of the object from which the light comes. Einstein's theory and the British eclipse observations prove, what was not known before, that a ray of light as it passes through the gravitational field of a large body like the sun is also perceptibly bent out of its straight course and likewise makes an apparent shift in the position of its source, the star. From Black and Davis, Practical Physics, published by the Macmillan Company. End of caption. Now, to such familiar cases where a ray of light is bent out of its straight course by the uneven density of the air or glass through which it passes, Einstein has added another and unsuspected effect, namely, that light is likewise deflected in passing through a strong gravitational field, such as the vicinity of a large body like the sun. It has long been known that the displacement of the earth in space and time, that is to say, its motion, causes an apparent displacement of the stars in space. The astronomer does not point his telescope straight at a star. If he did, he would not see it, for, owing to the forward motion of the earth, the telescope moves out of range of the rays that otherwise would have reached it. If you have ever tried to shoot a bird on the wing, or, better, a prairie dog from a train, you will get the idea. Or, if you have not had this experience, you have doubtless watched the raindrops running down a car window, and have noticed that when the rain is falling straight down, the drops strike the pane on a slant when the car is moving forward. The faster the car moves, the greater the deviation from the perpendicular. If the train runs backward, the rain streaks slant in the opposite direction. If then you should be asked to point out the direction of the cloud from which the rain is coming, you would, 
unless you knew and made allowance for the movement of the train, point in a line with the streaks on the pane, sometimes backward, sometimes forward, but not straight upward where the rain cloud really is. Now the astronomer is on a moving train, the Earth, which is rushing around a ring about 186 million miles across. Consequently, every star appears to wabble around in a little ellipse, and the astronomer has to aim his telescope, now on one side, then on the other, of the real position of the star in order to bring it on the crosshairs of his object glass. This apparent displacement of the stars is known as the aberration of light, was explained by Fresnel in 1818, to everybody's satisfaction until recently, on the assumption that all space is filled with an immovable medium, the ether, which transmits the rays of light in straight lines in the form of wave motion, and that the earth moves through the ether without displacing it, somewhat as an airplane moves through still air. But the aviator knows how fast he is moving by the current of air streaming back in his face. Why then, since the ether is in perfect repose, could we not determine the absolute motion of the earth through space by measuring the drift of the ether as it streams through the pores of the earth? Light appears to afford us a means of measuring such a drift of the ether through matter, if there be such. Since light is conveyed by the ether, we should naturally expect it to take less time to travel a certain distance if the receiving instrument is carried toward the source of the light by the earth motion than if it is being carried away from it. This question was put to the crucial test by two American physicists, Michelson and Morley, who devised an instrument so delicate that it could detect differences of one twenty-five millionth of an inch in the path of a light ray. But although this delicacy was ten times greater than was necessary to detect the ether drift, if there were any, no evidence of such drift could be discovered. End of section 7